Good morning, everyone. If you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews 10, leave them there. And uh, although I am going to take a couple of stops in the book of Acts, this is the second last sermon. If you're a visitor here this morning, we've been doing a summer series called What is a Biblically Healthy Post-COVID Church? And so I'm going to be preaching today on that a biblically healthy post-COVID church is actually committed to gospel community. And then next Sunday, Brother Matt will be finishing up our series talking about that wonderful subject that all church people love to hear about, that a healthy church actually believes in discipline. And that's how we're going to... There you go, Matt. Matt's been studying hard, right? Then in the fall, Lord willing, as we kick off the fall, talk with the elders, I'm going to do a mini-series, and we're going to go through the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then, Lord willing, in the winter, I'll get back to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. So that's a little bit of a preview of what's coming uh, when we get to that. But I want to start this morning by letting you know about somebody and see if you can relate to this. They stood and applauded him as he entered the room. And being the confident young man that he is, he sprang into measured steps and filled with an ironic swagger and grinned jokingly at his new supposed family who aimed to make him feel as welcome as they once did. And as much as he didn't want to, he felt it. Welcomed. That is valuable. As though he truly mattered to these people who were previously nothing more than strangers. My friend, this gentleman who writes this, his name is Elias, sipped his coffee, and as long as I've known him, he writes, he drinks it black, and he told me all about how this community was eager to make disciples. They are people on a mission to make people on a mission, he said. Gathering under this common cause, they spend days with new members in the hopes of instilling a dangerous belief. Are you ready for this? The belief that the world can be a different sort of place and that we each have a role to play. They give every person a copy of a special book, a credo, the basis for their way of seeing and engaging with the world. And when I'm having a rough day, a more experienced member said to me, I turn to this book and I'm reminded why we do what we do and it never lets me down. Elias says, my friend told me all about his new experience, this new club to which he belonged. And then he told me that it gave him the heebie-jeebies. And he almost quit. You see, Elias' friend loves Jesus, and what he's describing isn't some new church. He was telling his friend how he had just gotten a new job at Apple. It's like a church I've never been to, he said, sadly, as though both have got something figured out but don't see the missing pieces. Even still, it seems as though Apple has learned something the church may have forgotten. If you want to grow sustainability, don't chase conversions, make disciples. Elias says, when I worked in the marketing world, I learned rather quickly that the most effective branding happened on the inside of an organization, starting with the employees and expanding to existing customers, and from there, the public. In some ways, the best marketing is the death of the salesman. 
You see, in the evangelical church, Calvary, we've turned that circle inside out. We've become so focused on conversions that we easily lose the plot or the mission of a healthy church. And as a result, people have often accused the Western church of being a mile wide and an inch deep. We've acted like spiritual encyclopedia salesmen. Sure, we've never read the book, but man, it's a steal of a deal. But there's an obvious problem with this, isn't it? It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. It's called the Great Commission. You see, the Great Commission doesn't encourage us to sell our book or even our system of faith. Jesus' Great Commission to His disciples challenges us to actually like our namesake and encourage others to do the same. It says, go and make disciples. It's the difference between selling a product and actually believing it works. Between believing in Christianity and actually being a Christian. You see, in the West, we tend to think of discipleship only in terms of a teacher-student relationship as though information alone changes us. That's our culture. Information is power, even though we know it doesn't work that way. But around the time of Jesus and Galilee, they had a different approach. There was a much more formal role. A disciple was a thing you became. A disciple's aim was to become the rabbi, their teacher. They spent time with their teacher. They followed them from place to place. And the goal was not simply to spout the same answers, but to live in the same sort of way. And the criteria for becoming a disciple were pretty stringent. You see, in the first century of Jesus' day, discipleship was like the Ivy League of Jewish life. It was like you got into one of those prestigious universities until Jesus came and turned all that upside down. You see where some rabbis rejected the uneducated and the uninformed, Jesus invited the Ivy League failures to come to him. He turned young, simple fishermen into fishers of men. He made them disciples on a mission to change the world. Jesus actually believes you can live like this and thank God that by grace we can. So Calvary Baptist... For all of the church plants of Mile One Mission, this mission that we have in Hebrews chapter 10 is called the outworking of the Great Commission, meaning a group of people charged officially with a particular function. And if we're going to do the Great Commission, then that mission requires community. That's the one driving function of the church. And like the church, the drive to be a community is a joint enterprise. As we come out of COVID in 2022, we live in a culture as individualism reigns. But the kind of community needed seems an impossible thing to hold on to, doesn't it? We live in a world of the absence of true community, life on life. What we find is we live in a discipleship vacuum. But, you say, churchgoers and even popular Christian authors are just so consumeristic. And yes, even in our world, we've got to own this. But since we're talking about it, so are far too many churches, including this church looking in the mirror. 
You see, the world often points to the fact that we live in a consumeristic culture in an accusatory fashion, and it's true, but we can't fight this consumerism without addressing the disease. You see, the symptom is simply individualism, but the disease is because we worship ourselves. Every one of you in this room is a worshiper. And every person believes that they are the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong. If you don't believe it, just try to talk with someone about politics or religion or COVID or vaccines, etc., etc., etc. You see, individualism is what consumes community. Placing value only on a sense of community... And experience trumps the actual thing itself. One man says, we often hear people talk about their sense of community and this notion that if they have friends, they must be part of something like a church. So they'll say something, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm part of the universal church, but it doesn't work that way. You see, if the church is the gathering of people from all walks of life into this great joint enterprise, then the redemption of all things by the saving work of Jesus, then it's something more like a neighborhood. Now let me explain. Seven and a half years ago, Debbie and I moved into 61 Gileanis over in Ken Mount Terrace. And we chose the house, but we did not choose our neighbors. It's pretty simple, isn't it? You've got the grouchy old man who sweeps the sidewalk in front of his house daily and always yells at the kids who play on his lawn or cut across his backyard. There's a house, we have one across the street, we call it the frat house, that's rented out where every single room is rented out to a college student. And it's interesting because they never seem like they're ever in school. You've got the professional who's got the BMW and the Mercedes and rarely occupies his driveway. Now, some of you, like me, befriend. Others of them, you may not. But it doesn't matter what your opinion. The community exists just as the neighborhood exists as the sum of its parts. And even if the parts themselves engage passively, the community as an outsider would see it as separate from the sense of community. But as churchgoers, acting in light of our culture, We need to learn to treat our church of choice as a product or service in which we engage rather than a visible community. And all too often we act as though our needs, our needs, outweigh the needs of our neighbor. And this approach is obviously a far cry from the self-neighbor love of Jesus. You see, we won't have a gospel community simply because I stand up here and talk about it. If the churches want to operate like businesses, we shouldn't act surprised when congregants act like customers. So, how do we address the symptoms of consumerism and individualism? Well, believe it or not, we can maybe take a page out of Apple, who ironically says, let's make disciples. But unlike Apple, Christian discipleship starts with love. And this is why the Christian church can conceivably accomplish something Apple never could. You see, the gospel good news isn't only that Jesus saves us from our sin, and we thank God for that. Amen? 
Amen. But he does that and he does so much more. Because not only does he save you from your sin, he also calls you and enables you to become like him. This is a special privilege. But if you want to grow your church in a real biblical way, don't stress about your youth programs or the style of your worship team. Don't stress about the preaching style. It's not that these things don't matter, but by playing that game, all we do is exasperate an already too prevalent problem. If we want our churches to grow, then it seems we've got to stop treating churchgoers like customers and our worship services like they're a product. Instead, we need to get on with making and being disciples of Jesus. And when we gather under this common cause, we may just instill this dangerous belief. Are you ready? The belief that the world can be a different sort of place and that we each have a role to play. Now, why would we want to play by the same rules if it's a different sort of world we want? The very definition of insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over and again and expecting a different result. After all, unlike the world of big business, the great commission of Matthew 28, which is the great call to community in Hebrews 10, isn't simply to fill the pews with faceless many and church coffers with the many faces of the colors of our money. No, our call is something bigger and deeper and more grander and eternal. It's to personally and lovingly make disciples of Jesus. My grandfather used to say it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. You know what it really means? Being little Christs. You know, Christians. So here's the big idea I have for us this morning. How is God going to work at Calvary Baptist Church and through Calvary Baptist Church, through Mile One Mission and church plants like Kilbride Community Church and Downtown Community Church and up at Northern Cross where John Lewis is probably preaching to a scant crew of six or seven people? Why would we risk everything to do all of these things? Because we want to see God work in our ministry collectively and individually to create a gospel community, not just this year, but for the next 30 years. So I come to you with this challenge from God's Word, about God's Word, and how to apply God's Word. And I've got some very simple points. So with your finger in Hebrews 10, go to Acts chapter 13, let me make two very quick points, and then I'm going to land the plane on Hebrews 13 for us this morning. I say before you as boldly as I can, gospel community is only created when God's church worships and prays. Let me say it again, gospel community is only ever going to be created in God's church, not Steve's church, not your church, not even our church. In God's church, when His church worships and prays. In Acts chapter 13, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manani, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, which means they were also praying, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Do you want to know why we can gather and gather and gather as churches in the 21st century church and yet feel disconnected, lonely, feel like nobody hears you, nobody sees you, nobody feels your pain? It's because too many churches are playing religion and we're not gathering to worship and pray to the living God. This is what we're called to do. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. But not only that, now go a few pages ahead to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And interestingly, by the way, if you saw that, when the church was worshiping God and praying, it was then and only then that the Spirit of God actually moved amongst the church to say, I've got a plan. And guess what the plan was? Plant churches. Go and spread the gospel. So, Calvary, we do not have to sing songs asking the Spirit to come in here. Let us never sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. He doesn't need a welcome. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is omnipresent and omnipotent. He will be here. What we need to pray is, Holy Spirit of the living God, lift the scales off our eyes to see that you are here. We need to be like Elijah's servant who was scared, panicking, when the armies of Ahab had surrounded him. And Elijah prays and says, God, open up his eyes. And it says that when he opened up his eyes, he saw an angelic host surrounding Elijah's home. And no one could touch him. In a modern one, I remember I was raised on this story of a missionary who went into the rainforests of Brazil. And they were known to be very violent And for some reason, this group of missionaries made it in and they set up camp. And over years, they finally broke through and learned the language and uh, translated some of the scriptures. And one of the head uh, doctors, like witch doctors, medicine doctors of that particular tribe came to Christ. And they were talking one day and they talked about their history. And this guy was sharing with him how their tribe had come to be the way they were. And he said, I don't understand when we came You didn't attack us. You didn't try to drive us out. And he said, oh, pastor, we would not dare because of all of the army you had with you. This guy actually saw angelic beings protecting this tribe of missionaries. And anyone that knows me, when I'm up here saying this, you know, I am not a guy given over to charismatic stuff. I am not a heebie-jeebie kind of guy. But I actually believe that if we will get into God's Word and in prayer, we will see the Spirit of God move in this church and in this city. But in in Acts chapter 19, the second part of a healthy church, gospel community is created in God's church when His church loves, learns, and stands on the Word of God. And that's Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. When Paul goes to Ephesus, and while he was there, Apollos was at Corinth, and Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some of the disciples, and he loves on them because they had been baptized with John's baptism, but instead of getting into theological warfare, he taught them patiently and lovingly, and verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 in all. 
Paul. And from that, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. And so by the time you get to the end of this, watch this in verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So as this church loved on each other, learned God's word together, and then stood on the word of God, the church actually grew to where all of Asia heard about Jesus, beginning with an apostle, lovingly, patiently loving on 12 other professing Christians who then spread the gospel through a region. And that's why I believe with all my heart that as Calvary Baptist embraces the real gospel and we lovingly and patiently stand on the word of God and we humbly admit that we need to learn together. We don't have all the answers. We are not the smartest people in the room. But we serve a great Savior that when we act like this, God's Spirit will be poured about on us and through the neighborhoods of this city. And perhaps in my lifetime and yours, we will see revival in this city. But then finally, go to Hebrews chapter 10. So we need gospel churches that worship and pray. We need a gospel church that loves and learns and stands on the Word of God as Christians. But we need to be and need to realize that gospel community is only created in God's church when His church applies its Sunday stuff to its Monday to Saturday stuff. If we are only good-looking on Sunday, and you're a good-looking crowd, <laughs> but if we only play church on Sunday and we live whatever else the way we want to live on Monday to Saturday, then guess what? While well, we are, and I love you, and that's why I'm going to say it, then we're nothing more than religious people. And we are peddling around five centuries worth of religion that has dominated this province and her history. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, that John read for us, and I wish that every professing Christian would commit these words to memory, and I want you to think about them every day, if I could do it. Hebrews, this what you know as the book of Hebrews, is actually a 13-chapter sermon. Yes, Hebrews is the transcript of a sermon. It was a sermon filled with some of the most amazing stuff and statements about Jesus in all the Bible. In chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, it's been one huge sermon basically with this subject. Jesus is superior over everyone and everything. Jesus has no equal. And you can try and satisfy yourself, but no one and nothing will satisfy you because it really is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But now in chapter 10, verse 19, the preacher now is making his application. He's headed towards his conclusion, and he basically says this, If indeed Jesus is better, and he is, and if you believe that, and you trust it, then something happens. Your mind, our heart, and thus our lifestyle changes. Changes. 
everything about us is changed. Oh, it doesn't mean we're perfect, but Jesus is. You know what it does mean? It means you don't pretend to be perfect, but you desperately want to be like Christ. You think about sports fans. By the way, who stayed up late enough to see Canada win the gold medal? Oh, there's a couple of hands, brave hands, good stuff. Once the Finns tied it up, I thought again, Canada's going to find a way to lose. So I just went to bed and went to sleep. Woke up this morning to find out that they had won the gold medal in overtime. Yay, Canada! We finally did it. But think about sports fans or groupies or fanatics that follow actors or politicians or whatever it is that you want to think about. Even pastors in some of our religious culture. We all know we can't be them. If you followed Michael Jordan or LeBron James, if you follow even Justin Trudeau or Pierre... Yeah, that guy. There you go. I can't say his name. No matter who you like, admire, want to be like, look up to, you know you can't be them, but you are desperate to know that you want to know all about them. That because you love them or admire them or look up to them or admire or love things about them, we desperately want to be like them. And we want the whole world to know that we love them. And that's why Paul wrote in the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 5, all about this. He said, be kind to one another. Watch these adjectives. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, how? As God in Christ forgave you. So he says, if you will be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving, then this is the result of that. Therefore, be imitators of God. Notice it doesn't say, be God. You can't be. Not to burst a bubble. That's why you should all take that, what would Jesus do, wristband, off your wrist. Because many, many times, what would Jesus do is what we couldn't do. And often, it's what we shouldn't do. But here's what we can do. We can be imitators of God as beloved children. Watch children. My oldest grandson goes to kindergarten in a few weeks, and I'm going to take him out in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to have a ginky grandson time and get him some of his back-to-school stuff, but one of the things that ginky and grandson want to do is get the same matching set of sneakers. <laughs> My wife thinks this is more about ginky than it is the grandson. <laughs> she might be on to me, Okay. But my grandson loves to be like his dad. He loves to be like his grandfather. He loves to do things. If he sees me out chopping wood, he wants to chop wood. If he sees me out drilling something, then he wants to know, can he drill it? And the Bible tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children and watch and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Kent Hughes says, the shift can be stated in various ways, whether it's from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation, all mean one thing. The preacher of Hebrews becomes very explicit regarding how Christians ought to live. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20, the preacher wants us to be reminded, but he also assumes, if you believe in Jesus and you trust Him, then you worship Him and pray to Him and you trust in who He is. 
You see, the problem in too many of our churches is I think too many professing Christians are like an awful lot of husbands in marriages. You ask a lot of husbands, does your wife love you? And they'll say, oh, she loves me. I'm just not sure she likes me. And I've discovered that an awful lot of Christians, when you say, does Jesus love you? Oh, yeah, Jesus loves me because I've learned the song, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. But practically Monday to Saturday, too many of us live like Jesus doesn't like us. We act like he's impatient or irritated. We act and we approach life when things go wrong or things don't go our way as if somehow we didn't get on God's good side because if we were on his good side, then good things would happen. And don't look now, but basically then you've just created a God that's no different than all the Greek gods. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords is so much better than that. Look, at back in Hebrews chapter 4, the, the, the preacher wanted us to know that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, so let us hold fast our confession. Does that not sound familiar? Because John read it in chapter 10. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I'll give you an example. There's a young lady sitting amongst us and she's in pain this morning. She's given me permission to talk about this because she wants to be an example of gospel community. While we were here last night singing through the Psalms and finished up our night praising God, Jasmine's cell phone rang to tell her that her uncle had drowned yesterday. And she lost an uncle. I met this man at their wedding. He was the life of the party. He had a joke for everything. And in just a few minutes, he was gone. That's the frailty of life. That's how much we're not in control. But I love it because Jasmine gave me permission to tell you as a church because she believes that we are to be in community because she has a high priest and we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with his daughter who is grieving and hurting. I reminded Jasmine last night that Jesus stood before a grave and wept when, she, when he saw the effect of death on the family of Lazarus. You see, this is what it means to not act like we're stained glass saints. We're real people in real time, living out real hurt, and often have just as many questions as anybody else. We are not smart we are weak, but we have a great high priest. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to Him in prayer. Even when you experience loss, or a marriage fails, or children rebel, or a job is lost, or financial ruin is real. Or depression haunts you. This is what gospel community is all about. We don't hide. We don't put on a happy face and smile and put on our Sunday best and come and act like we've got the world by the tail because everybody knows we don't. 
The power of gospel community is when we can gather together in our hurt, in our imperfections, in our desperation, and we can sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And he's cleansed us from all things. And so what does our passage tell us? Well, John Stott said it best, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. So notice in our passage, first we are commanded to draw near. Notice what it says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We are to come to church. If this church is a worshiping, praying, fasting church, if it stands on God's word, if we believe and trust in the access and advocacy that Jesus gives, then we quite simply have to are drawn near to the gospel. I can tell you that I know I'm called to ministry because on ministry's worst day, I still can't wait to be a pastor. And one of the ways I know I'm a Christian is because I have to tell you, no matter what mood I'm in, I always want to be with God's people. I need to be around you. We can have all the sappy songs that we sing, you know, you are the wind beneath my wings and you raise me up and all the stuff that we love to sing. But the truth is, I experience God sometimes in the most incredible ways when I am with all of you. Even though we're a motley crew. I once heard someone say, have you ever thought to yourself how do porcupines mate? Very carefully. And often being Christians is like we're doing the porcupine dance, isn't it? We're prickly. but we're called to do it. Jesus says we all need Him. One of the ways He teaches us that we need Him is to actually need each other. That's why I'm so proud that Jasmine's here. When every instinct says hide, the gospel says no, come together. Don't be afraid to say I need love. And it's not all to go up and give her answers. Because bottom line, probably nobody here has one. It's simply to be quiet, to glance. It's loving eyes. It's a gentle hug. Let me tell you something. That's something the world finds very hard to be angry with. See, I can stand up here and we can do marches and we can tell the city of St. John's everything we stand for and everything we stand against and we can yell and scream at the top of our lungs about all the moral decay we see in the culture. You know what that really does? It just pits two groups of people against each other for moral superiority. But there is absolutely something Holy Spirit empowered when we gently show each other the love of Christ. Oh, and that's speaking the truth in love. That's telling each other the truth. That is, remember, what is the mark of a gospel community? It's a church that worships and prays. It's a church that loves and learns and stands on the Word of God. But you know what? We can stand on God's Word, but we don't have to be jerks about it. 
My father had a book that, <laughs> I know if dad's watching this will sound morbid, when he passes away, I guess I'll inherit. That doesn't mean I want you to pass away, dad. But what, there are a couple of books my dad has in his library that I really want. And one book is titled, Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? Man, do we do that. And it's because we're not drawing near to the gospel. And notice what it says. A sincere heart or a true heart, full of assurance of faith. Heart sprinkled from a guilty conscience. Bodies washed with pure water. Is that not an overview of the gospel? But it's a gospel without distraction or competitors. Think of it like this. When you meet someone. Some of you have experienced this from me. After this sermon and I get out here and we close and I'm out there at the door and I'm trying to shake your hands. You've, you've experienced when I shake your hand and I'm smiling at you and you know I'm dialed in. But some of you experience when I'm shaking your hand and I'm smiling at you but I'm looking three people down. And you secretly go, well Steve's trying to be nice but he's ready to pull me along because he's going to get to that person. And this is what it means. It's I'm trying to be nice but I'm, I'm distracted. There's a competitor. The gospel, drawing near means there are no distractions, there are no competitors. So you are, are you, are we as a church, true-hearted with God and His gospel? Then notice what comes next. Let us draw near, verse 23, let us hold fast. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Hold fast. Hold fast to what? The confession of our hope without wavering. When was the last time you actually rehearsed? When you came to Christ to yourself. When was the last time you hold fast? When you are discouraged or even depressed. When you're embarrassed. When you're hurt. When you're angry. When you're frustrated. When you're tempted to be bitter. When was the last time when you're feeling all those emotions that you go, wait a second. I need to remember what I was. What Jesus has done. And how he has changed me. There's a reason that that old hymn exists. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I'll give you a challenge. Try to sing that song and be angry. Try to sing that song and hold on to your bitterness. Try to sing that song and feel God owes you. Try to sing that song and rehearse your resume can't be done. you got to hold fast to the gospel. Tim Keller in his book on prayer, he reminds us that Paul never prays for our circumstances to change. Search the entire Bible. You won't find a prayer like that. He always prays for us to know Christ better. And that's something we only can do in community. So why do we hold fast to the person and work of Jesus? Because we believe he's faithful. So what do we hope in or who do you hope in? A hopeless believer is a contradiction in terms. Even our world of chaos, we should still be and must be the most hope-filled people on the planet. Professor William Marston of the New York University asked 3,000 people, what have you to live for? He was shocked to discover that 94% were simply enduring the present while they waited for the future. They waited for something to happen. They waited for next year. They waited for a better time. They waited for someone to die. They waited for tomorrow. But our Bible says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen? So you know what? I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds my hand today. 
And so, yes, is my life a Skittles life? No. But I am a child of the King. And God loves me. And knows everything about me. Every lie and exaggeration. Every time I've run this mouth. Every time I have broken promises. Every time I have failed. He knows every intimate detail about me. And he still says, but you're mine. Because Jesus died for you. And I will always love you. And then notice, lastly, we're commanded to concentrate on stirring each other on. And he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as the matter of some is. But stir one another on to love and good works. That's what we're called to do when a church worships and prays and is built on the word of God. Then the people start to think about how they live as it relates to helping other people live. So what does that mean? We can stir each other towards good works or bad works. Hebrews calls us to lead others to a practical expression of love. Paul told the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And by the way, you can't stir each other on to love and good deeds from a distance. Human nature changes little, and the temptation to keep away from fellowship happened in the first century as much as it's happening in the 21st, and you can't cherry-pick your influence. If you're a part of Calvary, then you're a part of all of Calvary. One of the writer, one commentator said, from other writers, we know what excuses were found for absenteeism from church attendance. I do not need others is the ultimate idol. With one eye on the clock in worldly affairs, we all need the mutual encouragement of verse 25. It's exemplified in Barnabas in Acts, whose nickname was Son of Encouragement. So whether Barnabas was befriending Paul after his conversion, or speaking on behalf of John Mark in that famous confrontation with Paul, or seeing the grace of God at work in the young, somewhat revolutionary church in Antioch, Barnabas was always living up to his name. And we need churches, Calvary needs to be a church, a whole family of Barnabas clones. Look at verse 25 again. Life, Hebrews were neglecting to meet together for worship. And this is not about a, a legalism like we're going to take attendance. Again, I say I love you to Debbie multiple times a day, every day of the week. But there are some I love you that she hangs on to. But that doesn't negate all the other ones. Jonathan Edwards is my favorite on this. When he talked about holiness and he said, you know, some showers changed my life. But I still get a shower every day. Some showers I just do in routine. But he said, I know this. Every time I got out, I was cleaner than when I went in. And the Christian life is that way too. There will be momentous occasions. We're going to talk about a potential momentous occasion in just a couple of minutes. But every time we're together, we're better for it than when we're not together. And a healthy, gospel-centered church loves community. There's no cliques. There's no favorites. We just simply love to be together. We love to worship God. We love to pray with each other and for each other by name. We want to fellowship. We want to have spiritual conversations. We want to be real and transparent and vulnerable. See, if you come to church for yourself only, you've got church wrong. You come in your weakness for someone else. 
You come in your victory for someone else. You come in your need for someone else. You come with your service for someone else. Do you want a better marriage or to be a better husband or wife, a better family, a better parent or grandparent? Do you want to have better relationships, be a better single? And being a true Christian and a true church is all about being for someone else. Because isn't that what Jesus Christ did for us? He left heaven to become one of us. So he could change us. And this is what you and I are called to. And so Calvary, I want to ask you very quickly. Do you truly worship God each day and pray? Now don't do the legalistic thing right now. How much do I pray? How intense is my prayer? How much of the Bible do I read? That's not what I asked. Do you at least start and go, God, I just want to say I love you. When I leave for work tomorrow morning, Debbie's going to stop by the garage door. We're going to give each other a very brief little kiss. And we're going to say, I love you. And I don't go to my office and go, I wonder if Debbie realizes just how much I love her. Because I didn't stay there. I didn't get her a bouquet of roses. And I didn't make breakfast and deliver it in bed. And I didn't, you know. But that's not what a relationship is. The strength of a relationship is a thousand mundane moments that lead up to romantic epiphanies. Too many of us think that our relationship with God has to be a ten all the time. But it could be a thousand ones that gives way to an amazing ten. Do you love God's Word and spend time with God's Word and learn it? And do you apply your Christian claim to your everyday life and relationships? Calvary Baptist Church, can I ask us, does the city of St. John's and our many neighborhoods see God's presence and power and provision in our lives as a church? And I'm not talking about the building. A building should always and only be the result of what God is doing in the hearts and vision of God's people. It's the means, it's not the ends. But do you and I as a church long for, pray for, and seek God to show His power and presence at every service so that it affects our Monday to Saturday. It affects our friendships, our money, our possessions, our priorities, our willingness to serve, to sacrifice, to endure. And this is what we are called to. So let me ask you this, if you're here this morning as a visitor, or maybe you've come to this church many, many times, do you even know the Jesus I'm talking about? Or have you just figured out, I'm a religious person, but I don't know Jesus like this. So no more games, no more hobbies, no more just enough Jesus to feel good and get by. But will we have a desperate love, a desperate passion, a desperate abandonment because of Christ? And so with love... As one of you, I call upon us all to see Jesus anew, to seek the church differently, to be honest and teachable and transparent, to be an example and be an encouragement. And you might say, Pastor Steve, my week's been tough and I fail too often, I've sinned and I've struggled. Excellent. Then that means, welcome to the club. As one man writes, I am called of God. My authority is above that of the kings of the earth. By God's call and His word, I've been selected as a personal representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is my master and he has, he has chosen me to represent him, to stand in his place, to say and do what he himself would say and do if he was personally ministering to the very people to whom he has sent me. My voice is his voice. And my acts are his acts. My doctrine is his doctrine. My commission is to do what he wants done. To say what he wants said. To be a living modern witness in word and in deed of the divinity of his great and marvelous work. How great is my calling. You want to have community? Take the great commission and turn it into the great family. Let's not go out and look for conversions. Let's go out and be fishers of men and women and make disciples. Let's pray. Father God, I have said many, many times that I pray that the people will heard a better sermon than I have preached. But Father, as you search me, I pray that the men and women both here and online that have heard this sermon will know that I am desperate for us to know the freedom and the joy and the victory and the peace and the rest that is found in simply admitting I need Jesus. And so we link arms together and go, I need him too. Let's walk together. Lord, I believe with all my heart that that is what will revive this city. This city does not need more angry preachers yelling at them. This city doesn't need another list of do's and don'ts. This city does not need to be reminded of what I believe they already know. That there is a void in their hearts and lives that only, Father God, you can fill. What I need, what this church needs, what this city needs is a group of men and women who proudly and boldly and yet patiently and lovingly and humbly will go out into our neighborhoods and our classrooms and our workplaces and simply be watching and listening, ready to love, ready to listen, ready to answer questions, ready to show how we cling to you as we deal with the chaos of life. And Lord, I believe that when we do that, you will unleash revival in this city like perhaps we have never seen. But Lord, let it start with me and let it start in this church. Not so we can boast, but simply so we can testify. Our God reigns. In Jesus' name.